Section 31 of The Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter 16. Her vague, unreal existence continued. It seemed in some previous lifetime that Billy had gone away, that another lifetime would have to come before he returned. Still she suffered from insomnia. Long nights passed in succession, during which she never closed her eyes. At other times she slept through long stupors, waking stunned and numbed, scarcely able to open her heavy eyes, to move her weary limbs. The pressure of the iron band on her head never relaxed. She was poorly nourished, nor had she a cent of money. She often went a whole day without eating. Once, seventy-two hours elapsed without food passing her lips. She dug clams in the marsh, knocked the tiny oysters from the rocks, and gathered mussels. And yet, when Bud Struthers came to see how she was getting along, she convinced him that all was well. One evening after work, Tom came and forced two dollars upon her. He was terribly worried. He would like to help more, but Sarah was expecting another baby. There had been slack times in his trade because of the strike in the other trades. He did not know what the country was coming to. And it was all so simple. All they had to do was see things his way and vote the way he voted. Then everybody would get a square deal. Christ was a socialist, he told her. Christ died two thousand years ago, Saxon said. Well, Tom queried, not catching her implication. Think, she said. Think of all the men and women who have died in those two thousand years, and socialism has not come yet. And in two thousand years more, it may be as far away as ever. Tom, your socialism never did you any good. It is a dream. It wouldn't be, he began, with a flash of resentment. If they believed as you do, only they don't. You don't succeed in making them. But we are increasing every year, he argued. Two thousand years is an awfully long time, she said quietly. Her brother's tired face saddened, as he noted. Then he sighed. Well, Saxon, if it's a dream, it is a good dream. I don't want to dream, was her reply. I want things real. I want them now. And before her fancy passed the countless generations of the stupid lowly, the Billies and Saxons, the Berts and Marys, the Toms and Sarahs, and to what end? The salt vats and the grave? Mercedes was a hard and wicked woman, but Mercedes was right. The stupid must always be under the heels of the clever ones. Only she, Saxon, daughter of Daisy, who had written wonderful poems and of a soldier father on a roan war-horse, daughter of the strong generations who had won half a world from the wild nature and the savage Indian. No, she was not stupid. It was as if she suffered false imprisonment. There was some mistake. She would find the way out. With the two dollars she bought a sack of flour and a half a sack of potatoes. This relieved the monotony of her clams and mussels. Like the Italian and Portuguese women, she gathered driftwood and carried it home, though always she did it with a shamed pride, timing her arrival so that it would be after dark. One day, 
on the mud-flat side of the rock wall, an Italian fishing boat hauled up on the sand, dredged from the channel. From the top of the wall, Saxon watched the men grouped about a charcoal brazier, eating crusty Italian bread and a stew of meat and vegetables, washed down with long draughts of thin red wine. She envied them their freedom that advertised itself in the heartiness of their meal, in the tones of their chatter and laughter, in the very boat itself that was not tied always to one place and that carried them wherever they willed. Afterward, they dragged the seine across the mudflats and up on the sand, selecting for themselves only the larger kinds of fish. Many thousands of small fish, like sardines, were left lying on the sand when they sailed away. Saxon got a sackful of the fish and was compelled to make two trips in order to carry them home, where she salted them down in a wooden washtub. Her lapses of consciousness continued. The strangest things she did while in such condition was on Sandy Beach. There she discovered herself one windy afternoon lying in a hole she had dug with sacks for blankets. She had even roofed the hole in rough fashion by means of driftwood and marsh grass. On top of the grass she had piled sand. Another time she came to herself walking across the marshes, a bundle of driftwood tied with a bale rope on her shoulder. Charlie Long was walking beside her. She could see his face in the starlight. She wondered dully how long he had been talking, what he had said. Then she was curious to hear what he was saying. She was not afraid, despite his strength, his wicked nature, and the loneliness and darkness of the marsh. It's a shame for a girl like you to have to do this, he was saying, apparently in repetition of what he had already urged. Come on and say the word, Saxon. Come on and say the word. She stopped and quietly faced him. Listen, Charlie Long, Billy's only doing thirty days, and his time is almost up. When he gets out, your life won't be worth a pinch of salt if I tell him you've been bothering me. Now listen, if you go right now away from here and stay away, I won't tell him. That's all I've got to say. The big blacksmith stood in scowling indecision, his face pathetic in its fierce yearnings, his hands making unconscious, clutching contractions. Why, you little small thing, he said desperately, I could break you in one hand. I could. Why, I could do anything I wanted. I don't want to hurt you, Saxon. You know that. Just say the word. I've said the only word I'm going to say. God, he muttered, in involuntary admiration. You ain't afraid. You ain't afraid. They faced each other for long, silent minutes. Why ain't you afraid, he demanded at last, after peering into the surrounding darkness, as if searching for her hidden allies. Because I married a man, Saxon said briefly, and now you'd better go. When he had gone, she shifted the load of wood to her other shoulder and started on, in her breast, a quiet thrill of pride in Billy. Though behind prison bars, she still leaned against his strength. The mere naming of him was sufficient to drive away a brute like Charlie Long. On the day that Otto Frank was hanged, she remained indoors. 
the evening papers published the account. There had been no reprieve. In Sacramento was a railroad governor who might reprieve or even pardon bank wreckers and grafters, but who dared not lift his finger for a working man. All this was the talk of the neighborhood. It had been Billy's talk. It had been Bert's talk. The next day Saxon started out the rock wall, and the specter of Otto Frank walked by her side, and with him was a dimmer, mistier specter that she recognized as Billy. Was he, too, destined to tread his way to Otto Frank's dark end? Surely so, if the blood and the strike continued. He was a fighter. He felt he was right in fighting. It was easy to kill a man, even if he did not intend it. Sometime, when he was slugging a scab, the scab would fracture his skull on a stone curbing or a cement sidewalk, and then Billy would hang. That was why Otto Frank hanged. He had not intended to kill Henderson. It was only by accident that Henderson's skull was fractured. Yet Otto Frank had been hanged for it just the same. She wrung her hands and wept loudly as she stumbled among the windy rocks. The hours passed, and she was lost to herself and her grief. When she came to, she found herself on the far end of the wall where it jutted into the bay between the Oakland and Alameda moles. But she could see no wall. It was the time of the full moon, and the unusual high tide covered the rocks. She was knee-deep in the water, and about her knees swam scores of big rock rats, squeaking and fighting, scrambling to climb upon her out of the flood. She screamed with fright and horror, and kicked at them, some dived and swam away under water. Others circled about her warily, at a distance, and one big fellow laid his teeth into her shoe. Him she stepped on and crushed with her free foot. By this time, though still trembling, she was able to coolly consider the situation. She waded to a stout stick of driftwood a few feet away, and with this quickly cleared a space about herself. A grinning small boy in a small, bright-painted and half-decked skiff sailed close into the wall and let go his sheet to spill the wind. Want to get aboard, he called. Yes, she answered. There are thousands of big rats here. I'm afraid of them. He nodded, ran close in, spilled the wind from his sail, the boat's way carrying it gently to her. Shove out its bow, he commanded. That's right. I don't want to break my centerboard. And then jump aboard in the stern, quick, alongside of me. She obeyed, stepping in lightly beside him. He held the tiller up with his elbow, pulled in on the sheet, and as the sail filled, the boat sprang away over the rippling water. You know boats, the boy said approvingly. He was a slender, almost frail lad of twelve or thirteen years though healthy enough, with sunburned, freckled face and large gray eyes that were clear and wistful. Despite his possession of the pretty boat, Saxon was quick to sense that he was one of them, a child of the people. First boat I was ever in, except ferry boats, Saxon laughed. He looked at her keenly. Well, you take to it like a duck to water is all I can say about it. 
Where do you want me to land you? Anywhere. He opened his mouth to speak, gave her another long look, considered for a space, then asked suddenly, Got plenty of time? She nodded. All day? Again she nodded. Say, I tell you, I'm going out on this ebb to Goat Island for rock cod, and I'll come in on the flood this evening. I've got plenty of lines and bait. Want to come along? We can both fish, and what you catch you can have. Saxon hesitated. The freedom and motion of the small boat appealed to her, like the ships she had envied. It was outbound. Maybe you'll drown me, she parleyed. The boy threw back his head with pride. I guess I've been sailing many a long day myself, and I ain't drowned yet. All right, she consented, though remember, I don't know anything about boats. Oh, that's all right. Now I'm going to go about. When I say hard a lee like that, you duck your head so the boom don't hit you and shift over to the other side. He executed the maneuver, Saxon obeyed, and found herself sitting beside him on the opposite side of the boat, while the boat itself, on the other tack, was heading toward Long Wharf, where the coal bunkers were. She was aglow with admiration, the more so because the mechanics of boat sailing was to her a complex and mysterious thing. Where did you learn it all? she inquired. Taught myself, just naturally taught myself. I liked it, you see, and what a fellow likes he's likeliest to do. This is my second boat. My first didn't have a centerboard. I bought it for two dollars and learned a lot, though it never stopped leaking. What do you think I paid for this one? It's worth twenty-five dollars right now. What do you think I paid for it? I give up, Saxon said. How much? Six dollars. Think of it. A boat like this. Of course, I've done a lot of work, and the sails cost two dollars. The oars, one forty, and the paint, one seventy-five. But just the same, eleven dollars and fifteen cents is a real bargain. It took me a long time saving for it, though. I carry papers morning and evening. There's a boy taking my route for me this afternoon. I give him ten cents and all the extras he sells is his. And I would have got a boat sooner, only I had to pay for my shorthand lessons. My mother wants me to become a court reporter. They get sometimes as much as twenty dollars a day. Gee, but I don't want it. It's a shame to waste the money on the lessons. What do you want? she asked, partly from idleness and yet with genuine curiosity, for she felt drawn to this boy in knee pants who was so confident and at the same time so wistful. What do I want? he repeated after her. Turning his head slowly, he followed the skyline, pausing especially when his eyes rested landward on the brown Contra Costa hills and seaward, past Alcatraz on the Golden Gate. The wistfulness in his eyes was overwhelming and went to her heart. That, he said, sweeping the circle of the world with a wave of his arm. That, she queried. He looked at her, perplexed, in that he had not made his meaning clear. Don't you ever feel that way, he asked, bidding for sympathy with his dream. Don't you sometimes feel you'd die 
if you didn't know what's beyond them hills and what's beyond the other hills behind them hills and the golden gate there's the pacific ocean beyond and china and japan and india and and all the coral islands you can go anywhere out through the golden gate to australia to africa to the seal islands to the north pole to cape horn why all them places are just waiting for me to come and see em i've lived in oakland all my life but i'm not going to live in oakland the rest of my life not by a long shot i'm going to get away away again as the words failed to express the vastness of his desire the wave of his arm swept the circle of the world saxon thrilled with him she too save for her earlier childhood had lived in oakland all her life and it had been a good place in which to live until now and now in all its nightmare horror it was a place to get away from as with her people the east had been a place to get away from and why not the world tugged at her and she felt in touch with the lad's desire now that she thought of it her race had never been given to staying long in one place always it had been on the move she remembered back to her mother's tales and to the wood engraving in her scrapbook where her half-clad forebearers sword in hand leaped from their lean beaked boats to do battle on the blood-drenched sands of england did you ever hear about the anglo-saxons she asked the boy you bet his eyes glistened and he looked at her with new interest i'm an anglo-saxon every inch of me look at the color of my eyes my skin i'm awful white where I ain't sunburned and my hair was yellow when i was a baby my mother says it'll be dark brown by the time i'm grown up worse luck just the same i'm anglo-saxon i am of a fighting race we ain't afraid of nothing this bay think i'm afraid of it he looked out over the water with flashing eye of scorn why i've crossed it when it was howlin and when the scow schooner sailors said i lied and that i didn't huh they were only squareheads why we licked their kind thousands of years ago we licked everything we go up against we've wandered all over the world licking the world on the sea on the land it's all the same look at ivory nelson look at davy crockett look at paul jones look at clive and kitchener and fremont and kit carson and all of them saxon nodded while he continued her own eyes shining and it came to her what a glory it would be to be the mother of a man-child like this her body ached with a fancied quickening of unborn life a good stock a good stock she thought to herself then she thought of herself and billy healthy shoots out of that same stock yet condemned to childlessness because of the trap of the man-made world and the curse of being herded with the stupid ones she came back to the boy my father was a soldier in the civil war he was telling her and a scout and a spy the rebels were going to hang him twice for a spy at the battle of wilson's creek he ran half a mile with his captain wounded on his back He's got a bullet in his leg right now, just above the knee. It's been there all these years, 
He let me feel it once. He was a buffalo hunter and a trapper before the war. He was sheriff of his county when he was twenty years old, and after the war, when he was marshal of Silver City, he cleaned out the bad men and gunfighters. He's been in almost every state in the Union. He could wrestle any man at the railing in his day, and he was bully of the raftsmen of the Susquehanna when he was only a youngster. His father killed a man in a stand-up fight with a blow of his fist when he was sixty years old, and when he was seventy-four his second wife had twins, and he died when he was plowing in the field with oxen when he was ninety-nine years old. He just unyoked the oxen and sat down under a tree and died there sitting up. And my father's just like him. He's pretty old now, but he ain't afraid of nothing. He's a regular Anglo-Saxon, you see. He's a special policeman, and he didn't do a thing to the strikers in some of the fighting. He had his face all cut up with a rock, but he broke his club short off over some hoodlum's head. He paused breathlessly and looked at her. Gee, he said, I'd hate to have been that hoodlum. My name is Saxon, she said. Your name? My first name. Gee, he cried, you're lucky. Now if mine had only been Erling, you know, Erling the Bold, or Wolf, or Swen, or Jarl. What is it, she asked. Only John, he admitted sadly. But I don't let him call me John. Everybody's got to call me Jack. I've scrapped with a dozen fellows that tried to call me John or Johnny. Wouldn't that make you sick, Johnny? They were now off the coal bunkers of Long Wharf, and the boy put the skiff about, heading toward San Francisco. They were well out in the open bay. The west wind had strengthened and was whitecapping the strong ebb tide. The boat drove merrily along. When splashes of spray flew aboard, wetting them, Saxon laughed, and the boy surveyed her with approval. They passed the ferry boat, and the passengers on the upper deck crowded to one side to watch them. In the swell of the steamer's wake, the skiff shipped quarter full of water. Saxon picked up an empty can and looked at the boy. That's right, he said. Go ahead and bail out. And when she had finished, we'll fetch Goat Island next tack. Right there, off the torpedo station, is where we fish in fifty feet of water and the tide's running to beat the band. You're ringing wet, ain't you? Gee, you're like your name. You're a Saxon, all right. Are you married? Saxon nodded, and the boy frowned. What'd you want to do that for? Now you can't wander over the world like I'm going to. You're tied down. You're anchored for keeps. It's pretty good to be married, though, she smiled. Sure, everybody gets married, but that's no reason to be in a rush about it. Why couldn't you wait a while like me? I'm going to get married, too, but not until I'm an old man and have been everywhere. Under the lee of Goat Island, Saxon obediently sitting still, he took in the sail, and when the boat had drifted to a position to suit him, he dropped the tiny anchor. He got out the fish lines and showed Saxon how to bait her hooks with salted minnows. Then they dropped the lines to the bottom, where they vibrated in the swift tide, and waited for bites. 
They'll bite pretty soon, he encouraged. I've never failed but twice to catch a mess here. What do you say we eat while we're waiting? Vainly she protested she was not hungry. He shared his lunch with her, a boy's rigid equity, even to the half of a hard-boiled egg and the half of a big red apple. Still the rock cod did not bite. From under the stern sheets he drew out a cloth-bound book. Free library, he vouchsafed, as he began to read, with one hand holding the place while the other he waited for the tug on the fish line that would announce rock cod. Saxon read the title. It was Afloat in the Forest. Listen to this, he said after a few minutes, and he read several pages descriptive of a great flooded tropical forest being navigated by boys on a raft. Think of that, he concluded. That's the Amazon River in flood time in South America, and the world's full of places like that everywhere, most likely, except Oakland. Oakland's just a place to start from, I guess. Now, that's adventure, I want to tell you. Just think of the luck of them boys. All the same, some day, I'm going to go over the Andes to the headwaters of the Amazon, all through the rubber country, and canoe down the Amazon thousands of miles to its mouth, where it's that wide you can't see one bank from the other, and where you can scoop up perfectly fresh water out of the ocean a hundred miles from land. But Saxon was not listening. One pregnant sentence had caught her fancy. Oakland was just a place to start from. She had never viewed the city in that light. She had accepted it as a place to live in, as an end in itself. But a place to start from? Why not? Why not like any railroad station or ferry depot? Certainly, as things were going, Oakland was not a place to stop in. The boy was right. It was a place to start from. But where to go? Here she was halted, and she was driven from the train of thought by a strong pull and a series of jerks on the line. She began to haul in, hand under hand, rapidly and deftly, the boy encouraging her, until Hook's sinker and a big, gasping rock cod tumbled into the bottom of the boat. The fish was free of the hook, and she baited afresh and dropped the line over. The boy marked his place and closed the book. They'll be biting soon, as fast as we can haul him in, he said. But the rush of fish did not come immediately. Did you ever read Captain Maine Reed, he asked, or Captain Marriott, or Ballantyne? She shook her head. And you, an Anglo-Saxon, he cried derisively, why, there's stacks of them in the free library. I have two cards, my mother's and mine, and I draw them out all the time, after school, before I have to carry my papers. I stick the books inside my shirt, in front, under the suspenders. That holds them. One time, delivering papers at Second and Market, there's an awful tough gang of kids that hang out there, I got into a fight with the leader. He hauled off to knock my wind out, and he landed square on a book. You ought to see in his face. And then I landed on him, and then his whole gang was going to jump on me. Only a couple of iron molders stepped in and saw fair play. I gave him the books to hold. 
Who won? Saxon asked. Nobody, the boy confessed reluctantly. I think I was licking him, but the molders called it a draw because the policeman on the beat stopped us when we'd only been fighting half an hour. But you ought to seen the crowd. I bet there was five hundred. He broke off abruptly and began hauling in his line. Saxon, too, was hauling in, and in the next couple of hours they caught twenty pounds of fish between them. That night, long after dark, the little half-deck skiff sailed up the Oakland estuary. The wind was fair but light, and the boat moved slowly, towing a long pile which the boy had picked up adrift and announced as worth three dollars anywhere for the wood that was in it. The tide flooded smoothly under the full moon, and Saxon recognized the points they passed. The transit slip, Sandy Beach, the shipyards, the nail works, Market Street Wharf. The boy took the skiff into a dilapidated boat wharf at the foot of Castro Street, where the scow schooners, laden with sand and gravel, lay hauled to the shore in a long row. He insisted upon equal division of the fish because Saxon had helped catch them, though he explained at length the ethics of flotsam to show her that the pile was wholly his. At Seventh and Poplar they separated, Saxon walking on alone to Pine Street with her load of fish. Tired though she was from the long day, she had a strange feeling of well-being, and after cleaning the fish she fell asleep wondering, when good times came again, if she could persuade Billy to get a boat and go out with her on Sundays as she had gone out that day. End of section 31